Hello and welcome to the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy podcast. I'm your host, Logan. On this episode, we are joined by Baldi Center mid-career fellow, Dr. Greta LaFleur. Dr. LaFleur is an associate professor of American Studies in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. We discuss their fellowship here at UB and her current work on a second monograph tentatively titled, How Sex Became Good, The Feminist Movements and Racial Politics That Made Modern Sexuality. Here is Dr. Greta LaFleur. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to participate on the podcast. Uh, I just want to start off by having you introduce yourself to the audience. Um, Well, thank you for having me. And um, so my name is Greta LaFleur. I am an associate professor of American Studies and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. um, And I'm also a fellow at the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy this semester. Yeah. So could you explain kind of what a mid-career fellowship looks like and, and why UB? Yeah, so um, one of the reasons that I applied is that this is one of the few interdisciplinary legal studies centers. Um, There's not a ton of them, mostly when you have um, centers attached to law schools or that are part of law schools. They tend to be about, I I mean, not entirely exclusively legal scholarship, but like um, there's, I think, uh, from the outside, as someone who's not a law professor, I'm appointed in a humanities department, it looks to me like it looks to me like there's not a lot of space for interdisciplinary scholarship in a lot of those programs. So this is one of the few that seem to really sponsor interdisciplinary legal scholarship. So that was that was one of the reasons why I wanted to come here. I also like in part and from Toronto and my mom's from Utica, New York. I have a lot of ties in this area. And also I'm, you know, what the one the big things that fellowships do, the big thing that fellowships do is they basically buy you time away from teaching so you can um, sort of accelerate and advance, you know, your research. So that's what I'm trying to do here this semester. And could you give us a little background on what first drew you to this area of study, uh, American studies, women's gender and sexual studies? Yeah, so um, so I, man, I mean, I think part of it, part of the women, gender and sexuality studies um, interest is, you know, I am a queer person. I, you know, was assigned female at birth. And, you know, I think that there's a way that that some of the politics surrounding gender and sexuality, especially like being born in 1981, like I do, I, I the older I get, I increasingly think about how um, the sort of really, really vastly, vast shifts in the landscape surrounding gender and sexuality or the politics of gender and sexuality in the United States. Um, I mean, those shifts have really defined my life in a lot of ways. So I think, and as a naturally kind of curious person, I like to think about them and, you know, because we encounter them a lot um, just in our sort of everyday lives. And then when I went to college, I, you know, studied WGSS or I took a bunch of WGSS courses. And I've, you know, I've always been in terms of my scholarship in Americanist. I was trained as a colonial Americanist when I was doing my PhD. Um, and there was something that was kind of a natural fit. Like I'm a, I work on the history of and history of gender and sexuality in terms of my work in colonial American studies. And um, there's a way that, you know, when I'm working on, in some cases, the exact same place, right? So if I'm thinking about, although maybe I wouldn't say it's exactly the same place because the geopolitical distinctions that define place have changed so much since the 17th and 18th century. Um, But like, you know, I might be like writing about what is now Boston and, you know, my mom lived outside of what is now Boston for the last like 20 years. And, you know, it's, it, there's some sort of natural continuousness around the the ways that you think and the questions you ask when you're kind of thinking about the same place and the same sort of questions. And so now you're working on a book that's tentatively titled How Sex Became Good, The Feminist Movements and Racial Politics That Made Modern Sexuality. Mm-hmm. 
And from the description that you sent over, there's a few phrases or words that I really would like for you to sure. elaborate on that I found pretty interesting. So it says the work tracks how cultural and legal responses to the problem of sexual violence shaped the politicalization of sexuality in the modern period. Mm -hmm. So could you elaborate on that phrase, politicalization of sexuality? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll back up. And I think I also maybe said this, but I think this is a useful way to frame it for people who um, don't know the project. So I'll, I'll frame it in two ways, one more academic and one less academic. So the academic way is, which is a more of a historical account, so as a colonial Americanist who wrote a book on the history of sexuality in, in early America, you know, one of the really notable things about working with 17th and 18th century archives that just immediately stands out is almost every representation, every explicit representation of like sexual cultures, sexual encounters, you know, sort of everyday sexual, you know, behavior um, is that almost all of it is, uh, is bad. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's coercive, it's violent, it's exploitative, it's, it's frequently, you know, uh, unwilled, unwanted, not consented to in the words of our time. So that was like what I was coming, coming out of the first book kind of thinking a lot about. And then at the same time, as like a queer person living in the 21st century, now the 21st century, previously the 20th century, I'm also like the inheritor of this tradition that I think is indebted to the women's liberation movement, to queer liberation movements, increasingly to trans liberation movements. And I, I say, this is not to suggest that trans lib is, is like less old than either of those two things. It's rather to say that the politics have gotten absorbed differently over time. And I think we're in a moment where we're absorbing a lot of the benefits of trans lib right now in a broader sense. But, uh, but you know, I'm the inheritor of these traditions that also teach us that like sexual autonomy is one of the purest forms of freedom. And it's that's such a bizarre mismatch like, how did we get from A to B, right? How did we get from a time when um, sexual practice was primarily defined by non-consent and violence to a time when we think about sexual practice as like one of the purest ways of being free? I mean, that's a, that's a bizarre, that's just a bizarre thing, uh, set of things to line up next to each other oppositionally. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where the, um, the where the project, uh, where the project came from. So when I talk about the politicization of sexuality in the modern period, what I mean is the modern period, like, so basically, I, and right now I'm defining the modern period as like, you know, modernity, sexual modernity, according to most historians of sexuality, happened sometime in the late 19th century. So some people dated as early as the 1830s. I actually am a little bit more in that camp. Some people think it's more like the 1880s, 1890s. Regardless of where you put it, there's like no, there's sort of no dissension or no dissent around the idea that we are sort of in this period that's defined by like a modern or modernized understanding of like sexuality. And what that means is the way that people talk about that is that so in a previous time, you might, as a person across your life, uh, seek out sexual encounters with lots of different people of different uh, genders in the parlance of our own term, sexes in a previous parlance, um, ages, across class lines, and, and it didn't really mean anything about you. Do you know what I mean? It was just you sort of like moving through the world. But around the, the turn of the 20th century, because of things like the sciences of sexology, psychiatry, uh, the long, long uh, sort of proliferation of racial sciences, or what we now call them pseudosciences, but they were very much considered real sciences in their own moment, uh, and any number of other things, there, there was sort of an increasing sense that 
that sexuality is not something you do it is something that you are do you know what I mean so like the way that people will gloss this and this is kind of something that gets attributed to the French philosopher Michel Foucault well they'll say well Foucault like charted the the um transition from acts to identities it's not really what he says but it's a useful way of thinking about it do you know what I mean and so right now like in our own moment we think of sex or sexual desire as something that is like internal to us it lives inside our bodies it's individuated do you know what I mean it's not something that like that is uh, defined by the world around us. It's defined by our, you know, our own experience. It's expressive. Like our behavior is like a direct indication of what our sexual, you know, uh, orientation or comportment might be. Um, so that's like, a, that's the modern way of thinking about the meaning of sexuality and the politicization of that. I think the way that it, that sex and sexual desire has been bound to identity politics increasingly over the last like 50 to 70 years, um, that too, I think is part of the, very specific politicization, the way that sexuality has been made political and has been shaped into a very specific political thing um, in the modern period. And so that's that's what I mean. So I'm curious about the, the way that uh, efforts to address the problem of sexual violence over time shaped how we came to sort of think about sexuality as something that's indelibly linked to freedom. And you were an author on a book earlier in 2018 called Mm -hmm. The Natural History of Sexuality in Early America. Mm -hmm. Were there things in your research or when you were putting that together that kind of led you to creating this book and what did that look like or what that process look like? Yeah, so that my my current book project directly, like direct outgrowth of my first one, very different sources. I think one of the things that, that I kept sort of running into in my first book is there's a real tradition um, among historians of sexuality um, and especially historians of sexuality who do not work on slavery and colonialism. And that's that's actually like until very recently, kind of most of them. Um, so people who are working on enfranchised communities of usually white and or European descended peoples who are not bonded or you know, other, you know, enslaved or indentured, um, that, te- that has tended to be the sort of communities that have been studied by historians of sexuality. But when you study those communities primarily, and also I should say also that most of these, most of the people that were being studied for the first like couple decades of the field's development were men. So when you study that group of people, so like white enfranchised men, who really are like, if like of all the people who are kind of able to exercise a certain type of sexual autonomy, it's really them. Do you know what I mean? Which is not to say that like every white man, European descended man was, but like, if we're looking at like the sort of population as a whole, especially in North America, it really was mostly that, um, or mostly them. You're getting a very specific vision of like what sexuality looks like. Do you know what I mean? Like, and there, there's reasons that the, that early histories of sexuality looked like that. And I don't want to general generalize. There was lots of different types of early histories of sexuality. Do you know what I mean? But I'm in terms of the way that the field is formed, especially you know in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like the voices of like people who work on white men tended to be prioritized in universities, like straight up. Yeah. So you get a very particular vision if that's the community that you're kind of looking at about like what sexuality is. And one of the reasons that they were invested in doing that a lot of the earliest historians of sexualities historians of sexuality were gay scholars who were a increasingly living through the AIDS crisis and B were facing like massive massive sort of homophobic attacks from all I mean honestly we're kind of seeing another a renewed surge of that kind of stuff right now but it was a different moment you know what I mean from when it happened in the 70s and 80s um and 90s I mean and 2000s and 2010s but one of the things that they were trying to do were say look like gay people's the, the legitimacy of gay people now of queer people now is in part sort of verified by the fact that queer people have a past so they were trying to prove that queer people have a past so I don't want to like 
just dunk on this group of scholars because they were doing really important work. But the work that they were doing definitely sort of shaped the way that the field went. Do you know what I mean? And this is all just to circle back to the question about my first book. The more I worked on it, the more I was like, oh, like I sort of was coming in with this idea that sexuality was a good thing. But by the end of the book, I was like, wow, every single example I'm looking at is like basically not really an example of what we would today include in the, under the umbrella of sexuality. It would be what uh, what today we would include under the, under the auspices of sexual violence, you know? And it, and of course there was a lot more room. Um, there was a, ver a very high tolerance for sexual violence to put it mildly um, in those periods. And I would argue that there's still a very high tolerance for sexual violence today, unfortunately. But I think, and which, so I'm not trying to like just apply our standards for like sexual consent to the past, but I think it's interesting that we don't talk about violence. Historians of sexuality don't talk about violence that much. And unless, unless they're historians of sexuality or historians of colonialism who are looking at, or look, or excuse me, historians of slavery or historians of colonialism, we're looking at sexuality. And those, those are the scholars that have really tried to theorize violence and its relationship to sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so with the ushering of the fourth wave, of feminism, how do you see your book fitting in with today's culture? And what do you hope the women of the younger generation or the younger generation as a whole pull or take away from your book? So I want to just push back a little bit. I hate the waves model because the only reason I hate the waves model is I think that it tries to tries to uh, force discontinuities between the different waves. And I think there are some really great continuities and some really poisonous continuities that have actually linked a feminism in North America, for example, over time. But anyway, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that for now. But yeah, in terms of um, what I'd like people to see, I think, I think, I think there's a strain, um, and I don't think it's actually hard to find in the thinking about um, sex and sexuality, um, like within feminist movements, including fourth wave, as you call it, but like including contemporary feminism or, or feminist uh, work by young people that are kind of like, it's it like it's it's really it's kind of hiding in plain sight where people are grappling with the fundamental negativity of sex. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not I'm you know I'm saying this as someone who like I think sexual politics have been probably you know and my experience of sexual politics have have been like one of the sort of defining conditions for my like political engagement in my life. Like I'm very much pro sex person, but the fact that I have to say that is I think kind of an interesting kind of tells an interesting story about the history of like feminist and otherwise women's movements in the United States. And I mean, I think the Me Too movement has been a kind of interesting example because, you know, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I I want to be very clear that I'm not criticizing me too. But the 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 other side of the other side of those conversations, if you look at it from the margins, you're like, oh, the the premise of of me too is that sex should be good. And there's not really a lot in the history of sexuality that actually supports that. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. Like I believe that sex should be good. I believe that sex should be consens consensual. But what we're like what i see people trying to do is like usher in a radically different experience of like what or set of standards around what sex is which is great and really important but i think that there's like there's just like a sort of negativity around sex that i think we need to look more squarely in the face and i think that there can be a lot of room and again i don't want i'm not trying to like undermine anything that any um people who do advocates for who do advocacy against against sexual assault against the structures that allow for sexual assault you know what i mean like i'm not i'm not like a sexual assault denier but there's 
I think that there's a way, there's a lot of space between what Me Too was talking about and a vision and the vision of sexual liber liberation that we have. That's like really just a lot of people grappling with the negativity of sex. One, here's an example that will kind of maybe ground this. I don't know if you've heard of the movement, uh, like the sort of, I don't, it's both like political and intellectual, the movement called heteropessimism. It's basically, um, it's a lot of primarily straight cis women, um, not exclusively, but primarily straight cis women who kind of write about how devastating it is to be straight and to have to and and to have to sort of engage with the sort of strictures that that heterosexuality places on the cultures of sex and sexuality. Do you know what I mean? So like so part of it a lot of heteropessimists would say is a huge tolerance for sexual assault, for sexual violence. Do you know what I mean? It's um it's a uh, like a lot of them would say that heterosexuality as a sort of structural culture or like or as a like yeah, as a structuralist culture, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Um also like really allows for misogyny, for the deprioritization of women and women, women's experiences or the experiences of women and feminine people. Um, because I'm not just talking about cis women here. So that I think, I think I'm really interested in that conversation because, because I think it's, it's basically a group of people who I think are coming to the same questions as I'm coming to, from, but from a really different angle. And I think like there's, there's got to be space for thinking about like, okay, sexual violence is bad. Consensual sex is good. But there's like a lot in consensual sex that 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 is still really ambivalent for people do you know what i mean and i think that's kind of what i'm interested in grappling with too there was another phrase that you used when in the description for your book and it says you know using vulnerability as a structural position and political claim mm -hmm. um could you talk more about what that means using sexual vulnerability as a political claim yeah so like <laughs> It's um, and this is not my this is not my idea at all. This is like a very very well trod ground in um gender and sexuality studies. Um, and also something that I've really um learned a lot from again, uh, scholars of uh slavery and its afterlives who have really thought about the way that sexual violence is weaponized and deployed in the service of things like white supremacy. So uh, so sexual vulnerability. I mean, we the the tricky thing about me too, and and I also want to like. There's different Me Too's, right? So like Toronto Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, who um, specifically sort of used Me Too as a way of describing, or not even describing, of trying to bring people together um, and specifically Black girls together and and sort of unite people in a sort of political stance around the a particular kind of structural violence that like consistently over hundreds of years has targeted Black women and girls and also feminine people and also Black men. You know what I mean? I don't want to just, you know, sexual violence is unfortunately really pervasive. Like her version of Me Too, and she's given so many interviews about this, is really trying to think about its like structures. Do you know what I mean? That it's not... It's not an individual on an individual sort of encounter. Of course, it is also that. But it's also it's also the like, you know, 300 years of history that's informed or that 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 informs the kinds of like everyday violences and sexual violences in particular that are aimed at black women and girls. So but I think the way that Me Too got picked up, especially by like people in Hollywood. And again, I, I'm not trying to like denigrate their their claims at all. Like this is like experiences of sexual violence are awful and I don't want anyone ever to have them, you know, but like th that was framed much more as like, 
bad apples, bad guys, you know what I mean? Like Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, you know, like, and, and of course those things are real. And I like that. I want people to sort of be held accountable. Although I'm, I'm very ambivalent about, um, to say the least about the kinds of legal accountability that people are, are searching for, but that gets framed as like, you know, a one-to-one interaction where like, there's one bad guy and one good person, there's a perpetrator and there's a victim. And I, so those are like very different visions of like what that means. So what I'm trying to do in the book with sexual vulnerability and again building on a lot of other people or the scholarship of a lot of other people is just try to think about okay like whose vulnerability gets seen and when you know what I mean and how do women's and feminist movements over time work to basically weaponize the sexual vulnerability of women, girls, feminine people, feminized people, um, in order to make political claims, you know, and and what I argue in the book is that it's really, I mean, and I, this is not a surprise. This is like literally the most obvious argument on earth. Like this is, and it's, it's like so many people have made this before me, but it's really white women's claims that get heard. Do you know what I mean? So like, for example, you could barely, um, in, I mean, and in many state courts, you just literally could not. But if you were like a black woman trying to make a claim of sexual violence, a complaint of sexual violence against someone, you would not even be able to make that claim in a court until the early uh, the early 20th century. Not even wish would that it were the early 19th century, but until the early 20th century. I mean, and this continues to be a problem today. You know what I mean? We see over and over and over again. Um, I actually just listened to the podcast exposed about Columbia University's the gynecologist that was like consistently sexually assaulting people but you know one of the things they do is they talk to the the assistant like the ADA who was in who was tasked with prosecuting the case and the first time they have like 300 victims and they don't bring the case you know what I mean because like courts not even courts but like prosecutors district attorney's offices um even the, the doubt starts so early in the process you know what I mean anyway so the sexual vulnerability of white women becomes this kind of like point around which white women and like women's movements and even the first if we're gonna go back to the waves the first wave feminist movement it becomes kind of their like like they're the consistent thread through all of their different platforms so suffrage one of the reasons that they wanted suffrage their articulated reasons for why they wanted suffrage is because they wanted to be able to own property and like basically be like they wanted to get rid of the doctrine of coverture which meant that like the man covered legally covered the woman um so that so that they could own property so that they could inherit property pass it on to their children and so that they could um, make claims in court against their husbands which of course didn't happen in terms of rape until the 1990s in a lot of places a lot of states but then and then like you know the um temperance stuff they were like well you know when men get drunk they like sexually assault women i mean all of this in a lot of ways is about the problem of sexual assault and sexual violence um but again the only claims that are being sort of listened to or the only concerns that are being listened to are of not only white women but like enfranchised like wealthy i shouldn't say enfranchised because they couldn't vote wealthier white women do you know what I mean white women who um both had the leisure and the education to speak and write and travel and also not get censured when they spoke publicly about this kind of stuff and then you know and it kind of goes on from there um but they realized really quickly that sexual vulnerability that articulating their own sexual vulnerability and making that the sort of the point around which to organize they realize really quickly that that's effective and that's that's what i'm interested in which is so i'm not trying to deny the sexual vulnerability of all sorts of people including men right including men and boys um and especially trans people but um but i am i do think i'm interested in the way that like certain claims gain a lot of traction and other claims are completely dismissed. And that continues to this day, you know? 
So for your uh, mid-career fellowship and for the book, what does the rest of that timeline look like? Or when can we expect that to be to come out? Oh my God, that's like 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 the most traumatic question. Um, yeah, it's like when your parents are like, so what are what's the, what job do you have after college? And you're like, I don't have a job. Um, okay, so the book right now, it's due to the press at the end of this summer. So I guess that would be August, 2024. I really hope to make that timeline. I'm a little bit, the tricky thing is the more I work on it, I keep adding chapters, which is like an illness I have. Um, so, um, so I'm, I'm hoping to make that timeline. I'm not sure if it will. So if I do, it'll probably come out in like early 2026 would be my guess. Like publication timelines are slow. Once, so I would submit it in August. It would go out to readers for a second review. They'd send it back. I'd do some revisions. I'd send it back in and then it would come out a year later. Um, so yeah, that's the thing. So, but I mean, sadly I'm done with my fellowship at the end of the semester. So mm. what I'm just trying to do, excuse me, right now is finish up. I'm working on a chapter on um, late 19th century and early 20th century age of consent reform movements. So efforts to, um, one of the things that I'm trying to sort of think about in the repackaging of sex as this incontrovertible political good in the 20th century is like what had to happen to sexual politics and sexual cultures to make them sort of eligible for being like seen as these freeing things. So one of the things that had to happen, I'm arguing in the book, is that um, sex needed to be for adults. Do you know what I mean? Because there was so much, the problem of of like sexual violence against children, which remains with us today, of course, um, was such a major problem. And this was also the moment where societies for the prevention of cruelty to children were popping up all over the place. And uh, so that chapter is trying to sort of argue sex needed to be repackaged as something that only adults could do because like there was a sort of association between willingness and adulthood which of course is baked into law that's why you have ages of consent and ages that we can, which you can vote and serve in the military and whatever so that's that's the chapter i'm working on right now well thank you so much for making time for me i really appreciate yeah it. thanks for having me if there's anything else you'd like to plug or speak about please feel free but i think for my questions, I think you've hit all those points for me. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, I don't think I have anything else to plug. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>